Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Well, a few things I want to invite us to turn our attention to in this story that Luke tells in Luke 11. Uh, The first, uh, Luke opens up, he was praying in a certain place, place and after he finished one of his disciples said to him lord teach us to pray the first thing i want to invite us to notice and it might feel uh, very simple and a little bit of a no duh but i think it's important is that jesus had disciples it's one of those things where it's like okay great this should be the shortest point of them all it might be but it's even easy in my own life and my life gives evidence to this to sort of oftentimes forget what it meant to be a disciple, what it means even now for you and for I to be a disciple. These disciples were a group of women and men. They were Jesus's first set of friends who had apprenticed themselves to Jesus as their teacher, as their rabbi. They're the ones of which Matthew speaks of in Matthew chapter five when he says, when Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. And arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. I think one of the things that this reminds us of, and again, it's one of those details, like any detail in a story, that it's easy to sort of rush by. But one of the things that I've been thinking about this week, and I think it's one of the invitations we are invited to think about, is what is the most important question you can answer is who is your teacher? And the reality is every one of us has a teacher. We all have a formation. We're all being created into and formed into someone's image. Every one of us has a teacher and so our question must be who is our teacher? In fact, the biggest human choice that we have to make is to choose our teacher and to follow their teaching. This comes up over and over again in the teachings of Jesus, whether it's the story of the sheep and the goats, of salt and light, of wheat and tares. Jesus is always pushing people and inviting people to make a choice. Who is your teacher and will you follow their teachings? And so even for just a moment, I want us to imagine we are one of these people who have chosen Jesus as our teacher, to follow his teachings, to spend time shoulder to shoulder with him. From what you know, whether it's a lot or a little of Jesus's life and ministry, if you could pick one thing that you would ask Jesus to teach you how to do, what would that be? Of any of the things that you could have asked Jesus to teach you how to do, what would it be? Walk on water, take bread and fish and multiply it, to heal someone who is sick in need, to heal yourself, to create hope where there is none, to tell stories the way he told stories. What's the one thing that you would ask Jesus to teach you to do? Well, the reason why I bring that up is because what's really interesting is in all four gospels, the disciples only ever asked Jesus to teach them how to do one thing. That's it. He teaches them a lot, but they only ever ask him specifically to teach him how to do one thing, and it is to teach us, Lord, how to pray. 
And so if it's true that we all have a teacher, the question should be, who then is teaching us to pray? Who's teaching you to pray? And I think this is a reminder that prayer is something we learn. And so if Jesus is our teacher, what we receive in his teaching from him at this moment is a specific form and very specific words. He doesn't give them an attitude or a posture by which to enter into prayer. He gives them form and he gives them words. And while our prayers and prayer in general can take on so many different forms and so many different variations, every single one of them are their own variation of this, the Lord's Prayer. The former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, says this. He says, for the Christian to pray before all else is to let Jesus' prayer happen in you. One of the things that's so fascinating to me about Jesus' response is Jesus is speaking to a group of women and men who knew how to pray. These women, these men, these first friends of Jesus, Jesus himself are Jewish. They grew up in a Jewish world, in a Jewish context. They would have learned from the youngest age how to pray. In fact, in many ways, prayer was the, was the, the air they breathed. Every memorable moment of their lives was marked by some specific prayer given by God to his people. They would have had a majority of the Psalter, of the Psalms, memorized. In Jesus' in worst moments of pain, what flows out of him? The Psalms, that dog-eared prayer book of God's people. So these women, these men knew how to pray. So why on earth did they ask Jesus, teach us how to pray? I would argue it's because there was something different about the way Jesus prayed. As they had spent time with Jesus, there is something different about the way Jesus prayed. There was a comfortability and an intimacy with the way Jesus spoke to Yahweh. When they heard Jesus pray, it was as if God was actually real. I don't know if you've ever been around one of those people. That when they pray, it's like, oh, <laughs> you actually think this is real. He believed that God was present and listening, and this comes through in his prayers. So for a group of women and men who thought they knew how to pray, Jesus arrives on the scene, and there's something different about him about the way he prayed, his honesty. And so in response to Jesus giving them the Lord's Prayer, which is a little bit of a, a shorter version than Matthew's, Jesus is going to then on the back end tell two small parables that on the surface are about perseverance and prayer, right? God is portrayed as a sleepy friend. Not that God is sleepy. Jesus' point is to keep knocking, to persevere in our prayer for other people, to not give up after one, but to keep going to the, to the door of the Father. And so I think certainly Jesus' two parables are about perseverance and prayer, but I have a hunch that Jesus here is doing something else. And Jesus is doing here what he does in every story he tells. He tells stories to create space. He tells stories that portray God as a friend and God as a good father. And why does he tell these stories? Because one of the aims of Jesus is to reveal to people who think they know him, 
to reveal to them the instinctual heart of the Father. That is one of Jesus' aims in his ministry. And I would argue it's about more than just simple theological knowledge. Jesus isn't going to, and you can skip ahead if you haven't read it all the way through, you can skip to the end of the Gospels. There isn't a test. There isn't a quiz. For Jesus, this is about more than just theological knowledge. What I think Jesus is often creating space for, in fact, part of what Jesus' time with his friends then and now is about creating space for healing and for reorientation. The people in that day in the first century, and let's be honest, in our day too, many of us, have been handed false images of God. We have been invited to worship idolatrous images of God. We've been given these images by our family of origins. Any of you who are familiar at all with attachment theory, that the attachment a child has with its parents, it it sort of sets the trajectory for the rest of that child's life. That it helps that child, whether there's a healthy attachment or an unhealthy attachment, begins to form the way in which that child will navigate the world, will perceive all of their relationships, their relationships with friends, with partners, and with God. Many of us, our image of God, our way of relating to God has been formed through our attachment whether healthy or unhealthy, with parents who are present or not present or a mix in between, of parents that we perceived as safe or as unsafe or a mix. But it's even been handed to us, these idolatrous images of God by churches and by traditions, by women and men wearing collars like mine. And there's immense pain here. There are deep wounds. It is holy ground to even begin to step into this space. Even as Holy Spirit was pushing me in this way, I kept going, I don't want to talk about it on Sunday. Not because I'm afraid, but because, as the psalmist says, I, I want to be so careful and never growing comfortable in handling holy things. And it isn't necessarily the images of God that we've been handed that are just wrong that are holy, but you are. Your story, no matter where it is, no matter who has helped write it, your story is holy and is good. There's pain here, and so even the idea of following Jesus, of choosing Jesus as a teacher, saying yes to his formational process of our lives can be a non-starter. I didn't understand this when I was young, especially as a pastor. Follow Jesus, y'all, it's really easy. He says, follow me. But it wasn't until I began to understand the complexity and the woundedness in my own story that I began to realize that sometimes the barriers aren't just that we're lazy or uninterested but there is real pain and wounding in how the following of Jesus has been explained or what we've exactly been invited into. And so, a little bit of confession time. Those false images of God not only caused pains and wounds in my story, 
but one of the deadly cycles of the enemy. And let's be abundantly clear about who's behind this. As Paul says, our enemy is not flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. Family, I really do believe that at the core of each of us is our desire to do what is good and right. And even as some people have handed and proclaimed, myself included, idolatrous, fictional images of God, it was being done because they thought they were doing what was right. And the enemy who was the deceiver was behind every single image, which is why I have no problem tearing them down. But the deadly cycle of the enemy is that those false images that caused pains and wounds were the same false images of God that I held on to and that I taught as a way of avoiding my own pain and my own story that was in need of healing. Because, and it, that became a deadly cycle to my soul and to others. Because I was uncomfortable with a God who was a mothering father. I was uncomfortable with a God who is gentle and curious and playful. I was uncomfortable with a God who moved slow and told really long stories. My own anxiety couldn't handle, y'all, my own anxiety couldn't handle the slowness of God. I was uncomfortable with a God who is a hospitable friend, as in Jesus' story today. I was uncomfortable with a God who is actually a good father who gave bread when I asked for it. The God I worshiped as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit hated me. He was set against me from the start and now grudgingly allowed me into the kingdom because I had prayed the right words. I knew the password. God was a God who I could never fully please, a God who could not be experienced and yet demanded worship. A God whose wrath had to be appeased like the pagan gods of old, like Thor or Zeus. And y'all, we had confessions and theological volumes to back it up. And then around 2017, I hit a wall. St. John of the Cross poetically called it the dark night of the soul. God gently invites me to take one small step of repentance. And even that word, I wrote that word, that word kind of bubbled out as I was writing this morning. And I was like, I don't want to use it. But I think this is one of those moments that's important because it's one of those words that has been wielded against a lot of people. And it's just people who don't know what it means. They have multiple PhDs and they don't know what it means. Repentance, the word literally means to simply rethink your thinking, to reimagine, to re-see again. The invitation from God was to little by little begin to rethink my thinking, to unlearn and begin to learn again who God is revealed in the person of Jesus. To take seriously his words, if you have seen me, you have seen God. For Jesus to become the filter and the guardian of all my understandings of God. Of the early stories of God, of the here and now stories of God. Now, some people would call this a deconstruction journey. And this journey had serious consequences for me and for my family. We paid for it. 
And I think deconstruction journey is an okay description, but uh, Brian Zahn in his recent book titled When Everything's on Fire, <laughs> that feels like, he argues a better term would be renovation. And I actually agree. Because if you walk into a house and it is painted, egg, the kitchen's painted eggplant purple. Now listen, if you have eggplant purple kitchen, I'm not knocking it, I'm just saying some people's taste might be a little bit different. That's all I'm saying. But if you walk in and it's eggplant purple or Kermit the Frog green, it looks like sweet frog. The answer isn't to burn it down. The answer is to renovate the kitchen. If the house has grown too small, the answer isn't to burn it down, it's to add an addition. And this is the, the image that Brian uses for this journey of renovation. And it's one that as I sit with so many of you on this similar journey, as I continue little by little on this journey, it is an apt metaphor because there are rooms I go into that I have stayed out of for a long time and go, nope, we need a new, paint, we need a new coat of paint, new flooring. And there are some entire wings of the house that had to be torn down. But the invitation from God wasn't to burn down the house because the Lord knows I wanted to. But the invitation was with God to renovate the house, to renovate my understanding of God, to renovate what captured my imagination as I thought about God and by God's kingdom. And it's not a journey we arrive to the conclusion of, I think, in this life, which is why little by little means everything to me. But it's also not a journey that we have to be on alone. For me, it was the friends of God and the forms of guides. My Virgil, if I was Dante. It was my therapist and spiritual directors, pastors and friends. But it wasn't just the friends of God, it was God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because too often these kinds of journeys have been framed out as a walking away from God has anyone heard that? A blindly searching for God as if we were on these journeys alone. But friends, what if? What if these journeys are actually journeys that were prompted by God? Like Abraham being invited to leave his home and to find the promised land where God is. What if this journey is not so much about finding a home as it is about returning home to a God who is already at home in you? Friends, what if these journeys, which I know many of you are on, are actually variations of the Lord's Prayer? What if these journeys are prayers? So with that, I'm gonna close by reading words from one of my guides. Uh, Richard Foster is one of those people who, if you ever have the chance of being around him, prays as if God's actually in the room. Uh, he started something called Renovare, which is an ecumenical organization focused on spiritual formation and healing. And it's one of those I have found in Renovare so many traveling companions for this journey that have helped me rethink my thinking and fall in love with Jesus again. But in his prayer, in his book on prayer called Prayer, in the introduction he says this, and I'm gonna read it to close. He says, today the heart of God is an open wound of love. He aches over our distance and preoccupation. He mourns that we do not draw near to him. He grieves that we have forgotten him. He weeps over our obsession with muchness and manyness. 
He longs for our presence. And he is inviting you and me to come home, to come home to where we belong, to come home to that for which we were created. His arms are stretched out wide to receive us. His heart is enlarged to take us in. For too long we have been in a far country, a country of noise and hurry and crowds, a country of climb and push and shove, a country of frustration and fear and intimidation, and he welcomes us home. Home to serenity and peace and joy, home to friendship and fellowship and openness, home to intimacy and acceptance and affirmation. And we do not need to be shy. He invites us into the living room of his heart where we can put on old slippers and share freely. He invites us into the kitchen of his friendship where chatter and batter mix in good fun. He invites us into the dining room of his strength where we can feast to our heart's delight. He invites us into the study of his wisdom where we can learn and grow and stretch and ask all the questions we want. He invites us into the workshop of his creativity where we can be co-laborers with him. Working together to determine the outcome of events He invites us into the bedroom of his rest where new peace is found and where we can be naked and vulnerable and free. It is also the place of deepest intimacy where we know and are known to the fullest. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.